0: And I'd like to go back to Acts chapter 7 tonight. As is so often the case, I, in fact, I would say that probably the notes that I take on sermons, I leave more than half of them uh, in my own head and do not have opportunity to share them. But I'd like to go back here and deepen us a bit, hopefully, to delve in a bit deeper into this passage. And if you'll indulge me in that, I do so uh, because of the situation and the way that this meeting has changed uh, during the week here, but also I think there is great benefit to think through a few matters, to go back and just comb through it in what we've learned and, and hopefully to gain more. I'd like to do this in six snapshots, to step through this passage in six different areas and to fill in some details that I hope will be challenging. The first it's more of a uh, just a housekeeping issue as we work our way through the book of Acts. But I'd like us to take a look again in getting our bearings that the first 12 chapters of this book, the break comes at chapters 12 and chapters 13. The first 12 chapters, the leading figure is Peter. In the second 12, the leading figure is who? Apostle Paul. That's right. There's a change there, shift there. The primary location in these first 12 is Jerusalem, surrounding areas, and of course with Paul. We know at chapter 13 it is through the known world to them as he branches out and carries the message further. The agenda here in these first 12 ch- uh, chapters is the solidification of the church and the initial outreach to the Gentiles. Let's go back uh, to chapter 1 and verse 8 as we remember the Lord's words. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He says to the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, the city where all of this starts to take place, the baptism of the Spirit in these early days, Judea, of course, the region around in which Jerusalem is situated, and then Samaria up to the north and to the ends of the earth. So there will be a tracking in the book of Acts of of place, moving from Jerusalem outward, emanating from Jerusalem, the message spreading. Now, in this first section, we have three tracks. The first concluding at chapter 6 and verse 7. So, two weeks ago, we came to the end of this first track in this first section of 12 chapters. And we remember there, there's this concluding word, kind of stuck out there all by itself, which indicates that it is bringing to close a section. Verse 7, "...and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient through the faith." Remembering the theory, and it is only theory, but there's some reason for thinking it's close to being on track, and that's that these up to this point, it's taken about five years. We're moving now into the next five years of the life of the church, beginning at 6-8, and the situation with Stephen. It begins now to branch out from Jerusalem, the spread of the gospel, and there is a, a movement from here that will be focused on Stephen here, and then on Philip, and then ultimately it's going to point to Paul, and from chapter 13 and 5, Saul of Tarsus, or becoming Paul, will be the key figure. In chapter 9 and verse 31, we come to the end of the second track in this first section. Chapter 9 and verse 31, you'll see again the summary So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Where's the church now? Not just Jerusalem, but the church now in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So it's still in Israel, but now branching out into these various regions. And uh, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church keeps growing, keeps progressing, and again, Stephen has a part in that. What is the part that Stephen plays in his martyrdom the persecution that he faces this persecution spills out from the murder of Stephen and there are those who are dispersed well I'll need to do some more research on that but I think what would seem to be the indication preliminarily is that these are largely Hellenists that leave remember all the apostles stay put in Jerusalem they would have all been Hebrew Hebraic Jews, but the Hellenistic Jews are probably the ones largely that are driven out of the city. And they go out and begin to spread the word. So Philip is, Philip, uh, Stephen rather, is a seed. His, his blood is seed, and it begins to progress and grow from that place, followed by Philip and Saul of Tarsus. Then we come to twelve twenty four, where we have another summary statement before we merge into the work of Paul that takes it to the known world. Acts chapter twelve and verse twenty four: the word of God increased and multiplied. So there's this recurring phrase, and then as, again as they as has been argued, another five year segment of the church's history. So that's kind of getting our bearings. That's, that's project one. Now, number two, going back to Sir Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7, this is, as I mentioned this morning, the longest sermon in Acts, and that is important. In many ways, it is the most well-developed theologically. I, I confess that how many, many times I've read this sermon and really not thought through its subtleties. But its subtleties are profound, this emphasis on temple, And law and land and how Christ fulfills these ideas. It's said in a very subtle way so as not to offend immediately, but to get the message out. I mean, Stephen's grace and his his wisdom are really profound here. The fact that he can stand that long and not be murdered is amazing. And it's, and it's so because of the way that he very carefully puts the message. He's getting the message out, but subtly, such that they don't destroy him in the first 30 seconds of the, of the speech. But in his martyrdom, we find here a transition of opposition. We have gone from the debate and warning of Peter and John, to the trial and beating of the apostles, and now to the martyrdom of Stephen, the first uh, Christian martyr. So that, this sermon is then very significant, and his death is very significant in what spills out from this point, spreading the word of God forward from here. Snapshot three. The prophet to come. Let's get a little better look, a more careful look, at this prophet to come that's mentioned in chapter 7 and verse 37. Chapter 7 and verse 37, here is where Stephen really hones in and says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Let's put our eyes on the original text of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. This is the text to which Stephen is referring. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. Moses writes, "...the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." who's he talking about it's my understanding some would very much disagree with this but it's my understanding that he's talking about Joshua originally that there is first a pointer here to Joshua the prophet who will rise up to take Moses' place and the Israelites will look to him but ultimately as the bible often plays out there are patterns there are brush strokes of the master artist as God works his wonder and his saving grace, he comes back to similar themes over and over. And often those themes are pointing to someone or something greater. And so as Jesus marshals this text, he sees that ultimately it points not to Joshua, but to Jesus, the word the name being really the same and meaning Savior. We have something here of a typology. That is, Joshua, the prophet to whom Moses is pointing, is pointing ultimately to a greater prophet, the prophet Jesus. John 5, just to put our eyes back on that passage again, and we did look at this this morning, but I think it would be helpful again just to remember John chapter 5 and verse 45, where Jesus makes quite clear that Moses is writing about him ultimately do not think that i will accuse you to the father john 5:45 there is one who accuses you moses on whom you have set your hope if you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words he wrote about me pointing to joshua uh, pointing to jesus ultimately I bring this up here in part, this is just a a matter of interest for us, but I think it's wise for us to be alerted to this. I remember a Muslim evangelist seeking to convert me to Islam, and he turned to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, and he says, you know who that's talking about. This prophet that Moses is pointing to is the prophet Muhammad." I'd never thought of that before. And at first you kind of think, well, could that be? Is that possible? Is that what is being said here? I think it's good to be armed with that if a Muslim would ever take you to that passage and say this is referring to Muhammad, We can know first of all, that Jesus Christ said that it referred to him. Now, that means more to us than to the Muslim, but believe me. But nonetheless, we know in Christ's words, we can be guarded with that or, or equipped with that, that Jesus said, no, this refers to him. But let's think through this a little bit further. Does it refer to Muhammad? Is that the prophecy here? The case for Christ, I think, is quite clear. First of all, because there is the Tremendous genealogical work that is done in the scriptures. Jesus did not, as I say often, drop out of heaven all of a sudden and we were supposed to figure out who he was. Jesus was always the son of David. He was the son of Abraham. Jesus was the son of Adam. His genealogy is carefully nurtured through the Old Testament text and we come to the book of Matthew and the first thing we find is a genealogy for a very good reason. This is the one. The New Testament is saying right out of the gate. So we have prophetic preparation through centuries of time that point to Jesus Christ, the son of David, as the prophet to whom Moses points and the project that God has been up to for thousands of years. The case for Muhammad is simply wishful thinking. There is nothing in the history of Muhammad, there's nothing in the prophecies that came from his pen, and he was the first one to have revelations that that were recorded and uh, became the foundation of the the Islamic faith. There is utterly nothing in preparation to say that this passage refers to him. Or Christ, there is much. But I think in further evidence... um, in the end, I'm going to believe the one that rose from the dead. <laughs> of course, he said, I will die, I will rise from the dead. Muhammad is dead. Uh, he said nothing along those lines. But Jesus said, this refers to me, and I'm going to believe that. But Muhammad's understanding also, we need to understand, of the Old Testament and the New Testament was abysmal. His understanding, particularly of the Old Testament, not of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, I should say of both, but of the Old Testament was abysmal. He was notoriously confused about the facts. It's clear in the history of Islam that Muhammad wanted to win the Jews. He thought that there was some uh, background that they shared together in Abraham and that there was some hope that through these revelations that he was receiving that he could bring in the Jewish people and how much stronger uh, his faith would be and his clout would be as a prophet if he were able to do this. And obviously it would have solved a few problems in this world, wouldn't it? But as he wanted to reach the Jews, Muhammad had a little problem, and that's that he really never got around to reading the Old Testament text. And so time after time, he made mistakes about what the Old Testament said. And as he presented his thinking and his writings to the rabbis in Jerusalem who live in the text of Scripture, they weren't particularly impressed with his knowledge of the Old Testament. And they said to him, essentially, listen, you're the prophet of God. How come God keeps changing his mind on the facts? Muhammad was very offended, very disappointed. He had lost the game because he had talked out of turn. He did not know what he was saying. And at that point, he had two options. To admit that his revelations were really not from God, to repent and to give up his project. The other option, the one that he chose, was to say the Jewish scriptures are wrong. Allah has revealed to me the truth. And so where the two conflict, the Quran is right and the Hebrew scriptures are wrong. End of Discussion between Jews and Muslims at that point, obviously. This passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, on genealogical lines, on prophetic lines, on the statement of the Lord Jesus Christ who rises from the dead, all have very significant pointers to being the Christ, the Messiah of God. Any other claim that this is pointing to some other prophet has nothing to back it but wishful thinking. It's saying that there's a prophet that's prophesied and we have that prophet. That is real that is the only foundation that can be given. So I think there's solid evidence here that it does point to Christ. All right. Snippet 4, snapshot 4, and that takes us back to Stephen's martyrdom. I'd like us to turn to Acts chapter 22 and verse 20. Acts chapter 22 and verse 20. We'll perhaps say more on this later. But as I'm going to start at verse 17, actually, I think we'll pick up the paragraph there. But as the Apostle Paul is speaking here, He says that when I, telling his story, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. He's just come to conversion and he hears this word of God. And and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Notice the emphasis here. I mean, Paul's done some pretty gnarly things to the Christian church. He has hurt the church of Christ in very significant ways and done things that for the rest of his life... Would trouble him but for the grace of God. But notice how much emphasis he places upon the martyrdom of Stephen. It's almost like he can see the picture in his mind. The garments were placed at my feet. I remember this man's death. Now, I don't want to overwork this because the text of Scripture doesn't make a big deal of it. But I I see here perhaps a parallel with the centurion who saw Jesus die. How Stephen died could it be dismissed? When you see these people coming upon him with such venomous anger and bitterness that they're willing to illegally stone him, to risk prosecution, to kill this man on the spot with stones, and you see this man bowing to his knees in death and saying, Lord, forgive them. Receive my spirit. In grace, he reaches out to his martyrs and loves them. Could Paul have possibly missed this? Coming back to this time, some years removed, he looks back and says, "I remember the day Stephen died. I was there. The garments were at my feet. I was watching. I was standing by and approving what was happening. He never forgot it. It's hard to forget how a man dies. He didn't forget how Stephen died. Now, there's no indication at all that that had anything to do with Paul's conversion. Perhaps it did. The text of Scripture does not uh, say that, and we don't want to make more of it than we should. What it took to save Saul of Tarsus was Jesus showing up and talking to him. Uh, It was a miraculous uh, event there and a dramatic conversion. That's what it took, not the death of Stephen as such, but Paul never forgot it. And who knows what an effect that may have had in his conversion as God used that in his mind. Snapshot 5. Let's move to the Son of Man comment back in Acts 7. This really bothers the Sanhedrin as Stephen says that he sees the Son of God, sees the Son of Man. Verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This takes us back to that great text. And you need to be familiar with this to have any sense of New Testament emphasis on Christ and who he is. Back to Daniel 7. Let's go back to this uh, prophetic vision that Daniel has. Daniel chapter 7. We find an amazing account here from from an Israelite where the belief in one God is clearly established. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, we read from the pen of Daniel, "...I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. He comes to the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God, and yet he is the Son of Man, distinct in some sense from the Ancient of Days, Yet to him is given divine prerogative, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All people's nations and languages serving him. The idea there is worshiping him, bowing before him. And he has an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and shall not be destroyed. This was a confusing passage to the rabbis of Israel to know of whom this spoke, this Son of Man. Now we know as we go to the life of Jesus, we consider his life, that Jesus used this phrase widely of himself. Using it over and again, it was sufficiently nebulous enough, the Son of Man, not to cause much stir. It identified him with humanity. Well, no one was arguing that point as they looked at Jesus and saw that he was indeed a man. But where Jesus does stir up trouble is Matthew chapter 26. You remember it. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 26 at Jesus' trial. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 59 Now the chief priests and the whole council, this is the Sanhedrin again, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you but Jesus remains silent. Now, this really bothers the high priest. Jesus is not going to defend himself against these foolish charges. There's really nothing to say. And so he says, "I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, the Son of God." Jesus said to him. Now he's going to testify. You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, or of the Ancient of Days, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now they knew what that meant. There's all kinds of Christians around the world who take the name that don't know what it means. And they tell you in a hundred ways how Jesus isn't God. But these guys knew exactly what he was saying. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. It's interesting how Stephen takes up the same phrase. In fact, outside of some References in the book of Revelation and one in Hebrews that's actually quoting from the Old Testament. Nobody uses this phrase among New Testament writers, but Stephen in this speech, he picks up that same phrase that Jesus used that so exasperated and infuriated these leaders. It's interesting, isn't it? This very same thing happens to Stephen as he speaks of the same phrase in referring to Christ. And that brings up the sixth snapshot here that I think is helpful for us. I've mentioned this, but I'd like like you to see it graphically. There's really an amazing thing, the parallels between the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen. Stephen is walking with Jesus here in so many ways. We could turn that on. We'll just work through this. I won't turn to all these passages. We've seen them in the book of Acts and you are familiar with them certainly in the life of Jesus. But the first is the wisdom that frustrates their enemies. Remember the statement about Jesus? Nobody asked him any more questions. He'd won the day with his reason and his wisdom. It wasn't his wisdom. It wasn't his belief that they could attack. The same thing takes place with Stephen. Remember those in the synagogues. They couldn't argue against his wisdom. In both cases, there was a trial before the Sanhedrin. We've looked at that at Jesus' night trial and at Stephen's trial earlier today. They both make a good confession. 1 Timothy 6.13 uses this phrase, and certainly Stephen makes this good confession. There is no one who argues against the points that he makes. All they do is get mad at him and kill him. The Son of Man reference, infuriating the enemies. That is what sealed Jesus' fate, And it very much is involved in the death of Stephen as well as he references seeing the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the power of God. There's a violent execution for for offensive blasphemy. I say offensive blasphemy because they were willing to blaspheme God in their own ways at times. But this was intolerable. The blasphemy that had been committed here, speaking about Christ, as Messiah, as the Son of God, and then a committal of spirit to to God. Remember Jesus on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen says the same thing. Lord, receive my spirit. It's a beautiful parallel there as he follows Christ. I don't think necessarily that he's consciously thinking. Now, that's what Jesus said when he died. I need to say that now too. It probably just comes out of the heart of this man Lord, receive my spirit. He knows where he's going. This isn't a man who's agonizing over what death might be. This is a man who's entering into the victory of the risen Christ. Receive my spirit. My body isn't coming with me here. I can see that. But receive my spirit. And both pray for their executioners. Jesus praying that from the cross. And Stephen praying that from his knees. Both of them as their life is ebbing away. They do not respond in in bitterness and anger. They respond with grace. God, if it would be your mercy upon these people, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Stephen died like Jesus because he lived like Jesus. How a man dies... It says so much about how his life was lived. And the best way to die is to die as Christ did. As I mentioned, we may not be called upon to give our lives as Stephen was, but we will die for Christ or for ourselves. We're going to enter into eternity and say in grace, Father, receive my spirit. We will long to go into the arms of Christ or we will rage against the powers of death that consume us. In fear, in anger, whatever it is, it will be death that consumes our thoughts. For those who know Christ as Savior, it is Christ who will consume our thoughts. We can't prepare for that any better than to live for it. And I, I, I will admit and say that there, it is a compelling focus of the work that I do in this church to prepare you to die. I, I know there are personality issues that differ among us, and some are certainly more lively in spirit than I would be and more entertaining, but I know in my heart, I see the work of the church as preparing people to die. That we would go into eternity knowing Christ. That is a somber thought for me. Now, it can be a joyful thought. I don't mean that it needs to be depressing and dark. It should be joyful. But we are you preparing to die? You're not preparing to die by simply getting your will done. You're preparing to die by knowing Jesus Christ. This man knew him. And look at the parallels as he dies. It's as if his life is tracking directly with Jesus. What a glorious way to enter into eternity. Are we preparing to die You will die the way that you lived. If God gives you that moment of time, some he does not, but for those that have that moment of time, you will die the way that you lived. I quote at length from R. Kent Hughes, who, by the way, starts the passage here in his commentary with, I'm not going to read it, but a very amazing story of a tough experience in his life where he saw a man who had been Uh, shot and was dying in the street, crying out in bitterness and anger. His life was ebbing away and he was so angered by the young man that it took his life in a a, uh, convenience store robbery, as I remember the story. How do we die? He quotes of others that are recorded in history. Listen to his writing. Death reveals who we really are. Consider the famous French philosopher Voltaire who used to say concerning Christ, curse the wretch that's how he lived he also boasted in 20 years Christianity will be no more my single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear Voltaire was proud he was confident cynical But when he died, he cried in desperation. I am abandoned by God and man. Here's the words that come from his mouth. Not receive my spirit, not Lord forgive my enemies, but I am abandoned by God and man. There were people that were around his deathbed recording his last words. This great philosopher who was going to straighten everything out He went on to say, I give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months' life. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. That's how he died. What horror, what emptiness, what bitterness. In contrast, writes Hughes, the moment of death also sometimes reveals spiritual beauty. John Wesley died full of counsel, exhortations, and praise for God. His final words were, the best of all is God is with us. You hear the contrast. I am abandoned by God. These individuals aren't talking together on their deathbed. I'm abandoned by God, says Voltaire. The best truth, says Wesley, is God is with us. The best of all, he said, God is with us. Farewell. Adoniram Judson, the great American missionary to Burma, suffering immensely at death, said to those around, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Those beautiful words. Stephen, full of grace and power. I feel so strong in Christ, says this man, in excruciating pain. Jonathan Edwards, dying from smallpox vaccination, gave some final directions, bid his daughter goodbye, and expired, saying... Where is Jesus, my never-failing friend? He was going to meet the Lord, and he was looking to find him. What grace, what mercy, what gentleness God brings into the life of one who dies like him because they lived like him. May that be us and may we be preparing ourselves to die and to die well. Stephen did and leaves behind for us a great legacy. But above all, he points us to the one that he paralleled, to the greatest of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died an excruciating death, suffering in the place of sinners, but who died saying, God, forgive those who torture me and saying, Into your hands I commit my spirit. For those who know the risen Christ, for those who have come to saving faith in Jesus, death no longer is an enemy that stings. It is an enemy that separates. It is yet to be finally put down by the victorious Christ. But as the Apostle Paul wrote, the stinger of the scorpion has been removed. It's gone. There's no more fear. There is only to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So we sung that song tonight to think of entering into the presence of Christ, freed from sin, freed from suffering, and in the presence of our Lord. How rich we are. How utterly rich we are. And as that glory overwhelms our life and that focus centers our affections and our desires, it will show itself in death, I'm convinced. We will not go out in an agony and fear of death, but we will go out into the arms of our Savior. But you can't go that way five minutes before you die. You'll die the way you lived, as Stephen did, as Jesus did, as so many saints that have gone before have done, and by the grace of God, may we be preparing to die well. Let's bow for prayer. Father, with thankfulness of heart, we praise you. We pray that you would meet us in our need. We do have a fear of death, certainly in our lack of faith and in our weakness. But God, we're not facing death right now. We don't have the grace to meet it in this moment. But I pray that when that day comes, that this church will be prepared. Prepared to die. Prepared to meet Christ. God, that we would be living a life that is preparing for that great moment. There will be no greater meeting in our existence to that point than to walk into the presence of our Savior, to walk into your glorious presence, and to know that we are now safely home. God, to that end we pray. And for anyone who is separated from Christ, who is separated from the joy of our souls, I pray that you would bring them to saving faith even tonight, that there would be a love for Christ that shows itself in this church, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we proclaim the gospel to the lost, in the way that we love the cause of Jesus in this world. Praying even now for those who suffer, for those that are planting churches in places where the message has never been heard. For those that are in difficult places and for us here in this place as we seek to proclaim Christ crucified and risen in a hostile world. Glorify your name through your people, we pray, and fit us for eternity. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.